0: Welcome to the menu on Native America Calling, our regular feature on Native food and food sovereignty. I'm Andy Murphy. For First Nations chef, Jerry Brandon, losing his sense of smell was a devastating blow to his longtime culinary career. It was the last straw in a series of setbacks, all spurred by the COVID pandemic. He's closing one of the few restaurants in Canada that mixed indigenous, American, and French flavors. We'll hear his story and talk with two native home cooks who are showcasing their culture on a TV recipe competition show. That's all after National Native News.
1: is national native news i'm antonia gonzalez lake county commissioners thursday delayed a decision about whether to stop county law enforcement on the flathead reservation montana public radio's aaron bolton reports the county is waiting for a court to weigh in
2: lake county commissioners pushed back the effective date for a resolution that would have stopped law enforcement services on the flathead reservation this week Commissioners say the county will continue policing the reservation, while a court case to determine whether the county or the state is financially responsible for that work plays out. The county filed that lawsuit last year. Governor Greg Gianforte recently vetoed a bill to pay Lake County $5 million over the next two years, arguing the state isn't responsible for paying for law enforcement on the reservation. Lake County, the state, and the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes entered into an agreement in the 1960s giving the county police jurisdiction. But it's long been a question of who pays for those services. The CSKT have repeatedly declined to comment on the issue. For National Native News, I'm Aaron Bolton.
1: A new study in southwest Alaska on COVID-19 vaccination shows a high rate of success. As reported in the Alaska Beacon, the Yukon-Kuskokwim Health Corporation tracked COVID cases throughout 2021 and found vaccines were 92% effective in preventing hospitalizations over the year. The mostly Yupik communities in the region have no road systems to distribute the vaccines, a lack of piped water and sanitation systems, and chronic overcrowding in homes. Factors that put them at high risk risk for the spread of COVID. Tribal governments and other health organizations helped to mobilize bush planes and snow machines to get the vaccine out to remote areas. The study found that protection waned as the virus mutated but bounced back after booster shots. The recognition for an Alaska native soldier comes almost 80 years after he died in action in World War II. KMBA's Rhonda McBride has the story. George Fox grew up in Unga,
3: a tiny village in the Schumagen Islands that today has no inhabitants. He signed up for the Army in 1941, just after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. The last his family heard from him was in a letter to his father dated May 17, 1944, written in Italy. He downplayed the dangers he faced, said he was finally seeing a little action, but told his family not to worry about him. Instead, he asked about the price of salmon and wrote, I sure would like to be fishing again. This makes three seasons that I've missed. Two weeks later, Fox died near Anzio Beach, a bloody campaign in which Allied forces lost 800 soldiers a day. He was literally fighting the Nazis. A bomb exploded near him. Michael Livingston spent almost a decade researching Private George Fox's story. He says he's one of the forgotten soldiers of World War II and the only Unangah to die in that war. He says Fox was buried in Italy, his remains sent years later to Alaska, where he was buried in an unmarked grave on a rocky hillside next to his mother, hidden underneath bushes that had grown over his grave. 80 years is really a long time for unfinished business. Private George Fox should have been recognized in 1944 after he was killed in action. Last year, a headstone went up on Fox's grave, followed by a full military ceremony. This year, efforts to acknowledge his service continue. Fox's name was added to a fallen soldiers memorial in Anchorage. This is the first time since this wall was erected that a new name has been added. In Anchorage,
1: I'm Rhonda McBride. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez.
4: National Native News is produced by Kiwanek Broadcast Corporation, with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribalrelations. Support by the American Indian College Fund, providing millions of dollars of scholarships to Native students every year. Applications are accepted through May 31st at collegefund.org or by phone at 800-766-FUND. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.
0: This is the menu on Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. Four years ago, Gary Brandon, an Anishinaabe chef, started a very successful restaurant in northern Ontario called La Tukton Tavern American. But then, COVID. It took a fatal toll on business and Brandon's last bout with the virus ended in chronic fatigue and a long-term loss of his sense of smell. Brandon closed his restaurant last weekend, and we're bringing him on today's show to share his story and plans for the future. But that's after this first course. In season two of PBS's The Great American Recipe, home cooks showcase their signature dishes and family food traditions. We have both native contestants with us today. You can join us too. If you love to cook, what's your signature dish? give us a call at 1-800-996-2848 that's also 1-800-99 native joining us from Seattle, Washington is Maria Givens. She's a co-founder of Tahoma Peak Solutions and a contestant on PBS's The Great American Recipe. She's Cordellane. Welcome to the menu uh, Maria. Hey,
5: thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for joining. Uh, We also have Rel Lum joining us from Maui in Hawaii. She's a nurse practitioner, home cook, and a contestant as well on The Great American Recipe. And she's Native Hawaiian. Welcome, Rel. Aloha. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining. So I want to start uh, with uh, Maria here. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about the show, The Great American Recipe. What, What is it all about?
5: Yeah, The Great American Recipe is a cooking competition show uh, where we have eight cooks. We all uh, cook in a barn, um, and uh, we have two, uh, two entrees per episode, and we're judged by um, Tiffany Derry, Leah Cohen, and Graham Elliott, and it's hosted by Alejandra Ramos. And um, it's on PBS and uh, first episode is coming out June 19th.
0: All right, awesome. So, what was it like for you to join, uh, join the the I guess the cast here, the the collection of uh, contestants. I mean, um, w- w- how did you get uh, selected out of so many uh, home cooks out there? Uh, I know the description of the show is a national search for the best recipe from home cooks. I mean, h- how did you get picked?
5: Um, yeah, I have, um, I've had a food Instagram called native full food for, I don't know, five or six years where I just put, uh, some pictures of the native food that I make and, um, buried in my DMs back, um, a long time ago, there was a message from a casting agent, uh, based in LA and then, Hey, do you want to be on a cooking TV show? Uh, I think you cook really awesome food. I was like, okay, this could I don't know what to do with this, but it could be interesting. So, I replied back and then after a, a lot of meetings and Zoom calls and auditions almost um yeah, I got the got the call that hey, we're you're going to be part of the show um and come on out to Virginia.
0: All right. Have you ever cooked in a barn before?
5: I have not cooked in a barn before. <laughs> I've cooked uh <laughs> I feel like I cook outside more than uh, inside the barn. They wouldn't. I wanted to cook um, salmon Coeur d'Alene style, you know, like over an open fire, and they wouldn't let me start a fire in the barn.
0: Okay, all right. And I want to go over to Rel here. Uh, Rel, tell us about um, uh, you know how you caught uh, the producers' attention.
6: So like Maria, I also have an Instagram uh, where I share Hawaiian and local food, and I also got a message, and I get so many random messages that I was like, I don't know if this is real. The person that reached out to me, their Instagram was a small following and didn't really have any um <laughs> any proof of who they were so I was just like all right I'll answer and I'll see what happens and I talked to my husband about it I was like no way this can't be real they don't want me like why me um and come to find out no it was something real and through all of, like Maria mentioned all the questions and all the all the things that we had to do then um ended up being chosen so that was it Was a it was a bittersweet almost for me um, being away. I've never been away from my kids, so that was a, a new experience as well. So to have to be really excited for this competition and then not be able to, you know, share it with your family and be a mm-hmm. part of it initially. So it was an interesting uh, road to get there.
0: Yeah, definitely. The, I mean, uh, sharing with your family was is such a big um uh, a big, uh, you know, part of the show. Uh, I watched uh, th- like the media copy of the first uh, episode, um, which is going to come out uh, mid-June. Um, but, uh, it, you know, a lot of the chefs on the home chefs, I mean, on the program are talking about this is um, their family's favorite recipe. You know, I learned it from my grandma. You know, they came from a different country. And this is a part of our culture culture. Um, but home cooks is, uh, the, the you know, the main focus here. You're, we're cooking at home. I mean, what, what first, uh, what is a, what is a home cook? Uh, Rel, can we, um, go, f- go to you for that one?
6: I'd say someone who's not a professional, someone who didn't go to school and have a culinary degree or someone who hasn't worked in a professional kitchen. So just an everyday person that likes to cook. I don't know that there's any, um, you don't need any certificate or any degree to be a home cook. more you don't get one, (laughs) that's what makes you
0: one. Right, right. And um, joining everybody else on the set there and listening to everybody else's um, cultural stories and family stories, what's one of the most important things you learned from some of the other contestants, Rel?
6: Um, It was so interesting to see all different walks of life, you know, like everybody, such diverse backgrounds. Growing up in Hawaii, we have a lot of diverse backgrounds here But I think the diversity here is a little bit different than the diversity in the mainland. In the mainland, it's different ethnicities. So it's really, really cool to meet people and see all the different types of food, even like the spices that they use, which is so different than what I use. So it was definitely a huge also learning experience. Meeting people and learning about their food, like what gets better than that?
0: Right. (laughs) And it sounds like you made a um, really good friendship with Maria.
6: Yeah, we're at, Maria's awesome. We we all actually got really close on the show. It's not like I don't know, you know, some shows are like cutthroat and there's a whole bunch of you know stuff like that. But this was home, feel good, homey, You know, kind of a thing. So it it was really nice. Yeah, was
0: there um uh, uh was there? I'm I'm sure there was a you know a lot of pressure cooking under a clock, but it wasn't like you know, something like Chopped where it's like 20 minutes or 30 minutes. I mean, you guys got an hour and a half or one. Um, but what was it like for you to uh, cook under a clock? Was that maybe one of your first times doing that?
6: It was tough. I mean, I've played sports all my life. So co- I thought ah, competition's easy. I got this. But cameras in your face, clock cooking, ticking down. You think an hour is a long time, but it's really not. And so that that whole pressure of being in that scene, it's a different
0: ballgame. Right. And um, what would you like audiences to learn about um, Hawaiian food?
6: I think this is a great platform to share information. I know there's a lot of misconception about what Hawaiian food truly is. So you have traditional Hawaiian food that was made back in the day. This is things like Kalua pig, um, chicken long rice, and lomi. We call lomi salmon traditional, but we all know that there's no salmon in in Hawaii, but it's part of that. But like kalo and poi and all these things that, you know, the Hawaiians ate back in the day. And then the settlers came, and then the um, plantation workers came. So that was pineapple, sugarcane field, and that brought over Chinese, Japanese, Portuguese, Filipino, Puerto Rican, Korean, and this blend of ethnicities. And all these people had to work together in the same place. They didn't speak the same language. So food was their common factor, you know. So they would sit around at lunchtime and share with each other. And that's kind of what developed what we call local Hawaiian food. So things like spam musubi, chicken katsu, fried rice, and stuff like that, that is very popular here. There is a difference between traditional Hawaiian food and local Hawaiian food. And we try our best to educate people about the differences between the two. Musubi is not Hawaiian, but it is a local food. It's a blend of Japanese and Hawaiian that came. That, a musubi is uh, white rice, Spam wrapped in um, dried Seaweed which we call nori and it's Something that you see in every gas station Every mom and pop store like it's It's a staple here it's not Hawaiian Though and then also a lot Of times people think oh pineapple Is Hawaiian pineapple is not Hawaiian it was A big culture a part of Hawaiian culture But putting pineapple on your pizza Does not make it Hawaiian And I just really want to you know let People know out there <laughs> Like, Please 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 don't call this Hawaiian pizza that's not a Hawaiian pizza
0: <laughs> yeah yeah um uh you know actually we did a show on uh pineapple uh, on Native America calling a couple of uh weeks ago, Uh, May 8th, Um, The Crops of Colonization, a whole show about uh, pineapple. Um, If you'd like to go back in our archives and listen to that one. But uh, today we have a couple of contestants from the show, The Great American Recipe. They are featured in season two, which is coming out in mid-June. We have Rail Lum from Hawaii and uh, Maria Givens with us. We'll be back after this short break, but you you can definitely join us. What is the great uh, recipe floating around in your family? Give us a call and tell us about it. We are at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Peggy Berryhill began her radio career covering Native issues at the famed station KPFA in Berkeley, California in 1973. Fifty years later, she is still on the air and has helped grow Native stations and Native talent for all that time. We'll hear from Peggy Berryhill about her career and mission to create a forum for Native voices on the next Native America Calling.
6: (requence) Easter Church, I may awajipuchi and ante <requence> tato, Yamante, Yayu Pachiate at two. East taught now on our canal on healthcare resources, Akitonante, as not two. As that I you and Ghanaian and this done, go dot CMS dot gov slash Women's Health Checklist, do Look at Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, don't know Ben and Nitula, canaway, Elacqua.
0: You are listening to The Menu on Native America Calling, our regular feature on indigenous food and food sovereignty. I'm Andy Murphy. And we're talking with Native home cook contestants today on, uh, they're actually on the show, The Great American Recipe on PBS. Give us a call and tell us about the great recipes and dishes that bring your family together. We're at one 800 996 2848. That's also one eight hundred nine nine native I want to bring back um, our guest, Maria Givens, over in um, Seattle. Uh, Maria, uh, what, what would you like folks to know about uh, Coeur d'Alene food that you've uh, featured on uh, the show?
5: Um, well, Coeur we're salmon people. Uh, I'm from the Coeur tribe, and it's uh, in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains in Idaho and eastern Washington and our ancestral homeland goes over into Montana and so uh, for us salmon was our main and still is our main uh, source of protein and um, sometimes we'd head over into Montana to hunt buffalo um, and all the Coeur d'Alene's, Kalispell's, uh, Colville's and Spokane's we'd uh, go over for the buffalo hunts. And so I tried to bring that into the show. Um, and so in the first episode, uh, I'm cooking salmon and buffalo. Um, and yeah, I really want to showcase our foods and, uh, you know, really show that so much of American food has native roots in it. Um, you know, when you think about stuff like uh, cornbread and chili in the South, like those are all full of indigenous ingredients and, um, you know, those are indigenous cooking traditions that we've kind of, uh, you know, said that they're someone else's cooking traditions when really they have native roots.
0: Right, right. Um, So uh, cooking for uh, these um you know these non-indigenous uh, judges um what were some of the things that uh, you really needed them to uh, know about your food and some of these recipes that come from uh, your family and your your tribe
5: yeah i think um you know these chefs are They're cooking in big restaurants where they're eating a lot of beef and chicken and pork, and uh, they're not eating elk and salmon and bison and deer. Um, And so one of the judges even said, Maria, I haven't had this many uh, different types of meat in so long. I feel like I've never had venison like this. And, uh, you know, they're, It was interesting because in so many ways, these judges have gone to culinary school. They know all of these incredible ways to cook food. And then there are some things that we were able to actually teach them about our foods and how to properly cook um, some of our foods. You know, something like bison, it feels like, oh, just cook it like beef, but it has so much less fat in it that you need to cook it a little differently or else it'll get tough. Or, um, you know, for deer or elk to get rid of the gaminess, we just soak it in uh, a little bit of milk for a while, and that pulls out the gaminess. Um, and that was uh, a new a new technique for, for the judges.
0: Mm, okay. Well, I learned something today. Uh, milk. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. Um, you know, speaking of culinary school, um, you know, I know a lot of... Um, you know, folks learn, um, about plating and just making things look delicious for the eye. Um, but you know, at home, I think a lot of us just kind of like put it on a plate and it's time to eat and not really think about topping it with microgreens or doing like the swoosh on the bottom with the with the sauces or anything like that. Um, Was that something uh, that you guys had to, um, you know, kind of learn on the fly or or maybe you struggled with is just plating and presentation, Maria?
5: Yeah, it's I totally agree. When I'm at home and cooking, you know, for myself or just my family, the presentation is kind of the last thing on my mind. (laughs) Like at that point, I'm hungry and I just want to eat it. Um, But, you know, on the show, uh, presentation counted for, I think it was a quarter of the score. And so uh, we, you know, would have to take about 10 minutes at the end of every cook just to focus on plating. Um, And so, you know, chopping up a ton of herbs and throwing that on top, adding color, making sure that, you know, there's a balance in uh, how you're putting the different elements on the plate. And, uh, you know, the feedback from the judges was always, this is beautiful or, you know, this is something to work on. And so you knew that plating was always going to be one of their – they weren't going to ignore that. Um, And so, yeah, I feel like now (laughs) – now that I'm back home and having gone through this experience um my mom was teasing me she's like you're getting really into like the plating of this corn that you made the other day and I was like hold on I need to get the natural light I need to get do we have any herbs do we have (laughs) she was shaking her head she was like who are you
0: (laughs) I was like when in doubt microgreens and edible flowers exactly just sprinkle it on top <laughs> yeah um what about you rel uh did you did you struggle with uh plating
6: uh for me yeah i'm i'm a mom you know it's like I, I it's hurry up get food on the plate and feed your kids so plating wasn't ever really a thing too much i mean i do have a food blog and you you plate nicely to take pictures but that's only once in a while every day it's like no, we don't we don't really do that here. So that took me some time. And then I'm not quick at throwing things on the plate and it being really nice. You watch the the professional chefs do it and they can plate up real quickly and it's really gorgeous. So that was definitely something um I had to work on. I wouldn't say I'm artistic in that sense. <laughs> so definitely look at, you know, Pinterest and get some ideas of nice plates and things like that. I think that helps.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, And uh, uh, the other day we were talking and you mentioned something about uh, macaroni salad and and that kind of being uh, an example of uh, that traditional uh, Hawaiian food mixed with the, um, you know, the Asian diaspora. Can you talk a little bit about uh, macaroni salad in Hawaii?
6: So in Hawaii, we have what's called a plate lunch. So basically, it's a takeout style container that just about every food place has. And it includes, you know, usually two types of protein, one or two types of protein, some sticky white rice, and always you have to have, we call it mac salad here. And it's, uh, you know, macaroni, noodles, some carrots, a little bit of vinegar, um, and like a mayo based so it's super popular in Hawaii, and people call it Hawaiian mac salad, and it's it's definitely not Hawaiian. We didn't have that back in the day. But the plate lunch is that ultimate mix of all kinds of stuff, right? So you can have things like kalbi or hamburger steak for your protein. White rice is a staple here, just like in a lot of like Japanese Cuisine, even Filipino and then always so it's like two scoops rice one scoop mac salad and your protein and you can find that anywhere and then each restaurant or food truck they kind of have their own specialty be it a chicken a beef or a pork some people do a seafood even but yeah it's definitely a staple here not traditional Hawaiian but we call it local Hawaiian food
0: All right. Thank you for that. Um, uh, Maria, I want to go back to you. Uh, After taking part in this whole competition here, uh, would you ever want to be a chef?
5: (laughs) Um, I don't think I want to work in a kitchen. Uh, You know, I'm very happy with my current day job uh, at a communications consulting firm. Um, But, you know, I think the whole process helped me uh, think about food differently and think about, you know, sharing native food differently because, you know, so many people just don't know about it or don't think about it. Or, um, so I hope that comes through on the show, but also, you know, I think I'm going to be stepping it up on the Instagram after, after the show comes out.
0: Right, right. You know, um, uh, after, you know, talking with uh, many chefs uh, during the last couple of years um, here at work, and then also with my podcast and some of the other uh, work I do with um, uh, food reporting, but, you know, now I watch some of these cooking shows, I look at these magazines and and cookbooks, and, um, you know, I'm constantly just like, in in my mind, like pointing out, that's indigenous, that came from Mexico, this... This is uh, this is ours. This is indigenous. I mean, it's it's something that um, uh, I'm I'm starting to notice a whole lot, uh, and and that's something that a lot of chefs um, and and people who are working in this native food movement are really uh, pushing out there. That a lot of these ingredients have indigenous roots, um, and uh, and you mentioned your. Um, Or or, or let me ask you this, Maria. Uh, Tell us uh, what you can about the recipes. Uh, This is about showcasing a diverse array of food. Uh, Where did you go into the competition wanting to uh, show the audiences?
5: Yeah, I think I wanted to show the audience that, you know, some of the food that they love about, you know, that we think of as american cuisine has that native root to it and then also you know i wanted to really you know highlight the coeur d'alene tribe that's where i'm from that's where uh that's the center of my universe and that's where i learned to cook um you know was from my mom uh cooking enchiladas in the kitchen when i was 10 years old and uh you know cooking salmon over bed springs down like, that's the cooking that I grew up with. Um, and so, you know, I wanted to bring that to the show to, you know, show that, you know, any other native kid that's out there that, you know, you don't see yourselves on these on a show. Maybe like uh top chef where it's the biggest, uh, most hardcore. Um, Experienced chefs. Maybe you don't see yourself there, but you can see yourself in, uh, you know, cooking some salmon on an alder plank.
0: Right. I like that. No, we've been seeing a lot of uh, a lot of indigenous chefs on some of these uh, competition shows and featured in uh, food programs a lot. I mean, we just had uh, your partner there over at the Tacoma Peak, uh, Tahoma Peak Solutions, uh, Valerie Seagrest on the show a while ago, because she was a judge on uh, Chefs versus Wild. Um, and, uh, you know, it just kind of shows that there's a lot more, um, uh, maybe a focus or pe- you know, at least producers are starting to notice that, hey, there's actually native chefs out there and there's native food. What do you think the uh, average American knows about indigenous food? And how have you seen that change over the years?
5: Yeah, I think if people think anything it's more just like corn or something at Thanksgiving and then that's about it. Or maybe buffalo. People can understand buffalo, Um, but I think it's totally changing. Um, People. I went to grad school for um, environmental studies and people were looking at, oh wait, the way that indigenous people have cultivated their food systems forever is actually the most sustainable way <laughs> to do this. So let's do these Indigenous practices and eat these Indigenous foods as a climate solution. So that's definitely changed in the last couple of years. And, you know, I think that people are are ready to uh, hear about our food stories, you know, because they there's good, bad, and ugly <laughs> in that. Um, and, you know, I want to focus on celebrating the good of our food. And, um, you know, I think people are finally ready to really talk about it.
0: Right. Did taking um, part in the show change how you think about what you do? Um,
5: yeah. I mean, I feel like I... The show was such a transformational um, experience in in my life and career. Um, I got to meet wonderful people like REL and the other contestants that you're uh, going to see on the show and all fall in love with. And uh, we have a group text that goes off um, at four in the morning for REL uh, <laughs> because of all of the time zones. And, um, you know, it made me think a little bit more about uh, just the power of our stories as uh, Native food people. Sometimes we think about it only in, like, oh, I got to feed the community today, or um, oh, I'll just think about it as, you know, work for protecting salmon or something like that. But there's so much more power in the stories than I realized before. And so, you know, hopefully people watching can can learn from those stories and we can create, you know, advocates for Indian country uh, through sharing that.
0: Yeah, and do you think these competition shows, um, you know, are, are more than competition shows? Uh, or I want to ask you, how are these competition shows like more than a competition show? How, how do they share more about people and, and where they come from?
5: Yeah, I think um, the Great American Recipe is unique in that, um, you know, it really focuses on the culture and the story and uh, how we help each other out through, through the cooks. Um, I mean, there wasn't a single uh, episode or cook that we had where someone wasn't helping someone else at the end to get it on the plate or to chop this, or, hey, my stuff's in the oven, I have five minutes, what do you need? Um, And so that was happening all over, um, you know, and I think that's what sets it apart and is different than maybe something that is a little more cutthroat of uh, competition. And while we did have, uh, you know, winners' um, best dishes and worst dishes of the round, um we still took that in in stride and it was always like let's learn from this and move in a good
0: way all right all right uh well maria i want to um let folks know that the show is going to be coming out June 19th, and uh, this is the Great American Recipes uh, show on PBS. Um, is there anything else that you'd like folks to know about maybe the show or just um, uh, your, in, you guys' indigenous representation on the show?
5: Um, yeah, just check out June 19th on PBS. Um, and you can support uh, me and check out more at Native Soul Food on Instagram or Tahoma Peak Solutions um, online. Uh, that's what I do for my day job. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just really excited and really hope that, uh, you know, we can get some support from Indian Country on this one.
0: Yeah, and I guess that's another um, uh, definition of a home cook. They have day jobs, but then at home, it's like the cooking is what we do for fun. <laughs> um, that was uh, Maria Givens over in Seattle, Washington. We also had Rel Lum on the show as well. Um, check them out a little bit later, but you can always join our show right now. This is the menu on Native America calling. Tell us about the the food, the indigenous food that gets you excited. We're at one 800 2848.
4: Challenges to societal harmony abound. Trauma, depression, addiction. In Native communities, these challenges affect nearly everyone. The Native American Social Work Studies Institute educates social workers for careers to address the needs of Native communities. You can be part of the solution as a peer support worker, community health worker, or a counselor with culturally relevant training from the Native American Social Work Studies Institute. Info at online.nmhu.edu. New Mexico Highlands University supports this show.
0: This is the menu on Native America calling our regular feature on indigenous food and food sovereignty. I'm Andy Murphy. There's still time to join our conversation. What Native foods or food programs and businesses are you excited about? We're at 1-800-996-2848. Joining us now from Temiskaming uh, Shores in Ontario, Canada, is Jerry Brandon. He's the chef and co-owner of La Tukton Tavern American. He's Anishinaabe from Dokus First Nation. Welcome to the menu, Jerry.
7: Hi, Andy. Uh, Buju and then my dog. Hello to all my relatives.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. I should say former. Owner of uh, La Tuckton Tavern American. Uh you closed the restaurant on Saturday. Um, tell us about tell us about what that day was like for you and the diners there. There
7: was, uh, there, there was a lot of tears mm. um, at the end of the night. A lot of people uh, uh, hung and and wanted to, you know, say say their goodbyes at that moment. And we were trying to usher people out the door, going, you know, we don't want to. A, a huge cry fest as, as, mm-hmm. as our last memory of the restaurant but uh, you know we had a major impact in a, in a very larger community here uh, crossing crossing provincial borders into Quebec so we you know it's, it's there was a lot of tears
0: right right so uh, tell us a little bit more about La Tucun uh, Tavern American what was it all about and, and I hear it was a very popular place in town
7: it was a, it was a different take on on uh, uh, you know bringing people towards indigenous culture and and cuisine. Um, it was it was very much a modern, very urban style restaurant, very high styled, uh, uh, casual fast, but you know, in blending of of, of cuisine in the sense that it was not specifically about indigenous cuisine. It was not specifically about French cuisine. It was more about my life and, and in food and my travels. So, you know, I would bring things from, from the Americas, from visits to Southern California. You know, I always told people I was that guy that would stand in a lineup of 100 people to get the best, you know, Baja taco in Southern California or, you know, sitting on the banks of the Mississippi eating little bites of fried catfish or or boiled peanuts in Carolinas. I was that guy that traveled everywhere. And, and I brought a little of that back. And, and you know, I took what I felt were pre-contact ingredients to a larger extent and blended it with, with you know, local traditions and Quebecois food that's been here for, you know, for hundreds of years. And ultimately, the restaurant, in order to be successful, had to be approachable. So, you know, is the food Michelin star? No, it was wonderful, deeply... Flavored food, but very approachable at the same time. That you know, a lot of people would come in. At least they understand it. It wasn't. It wasn't set out to be, you know, reinventing the wheel or, or an education in what uh, Anishinaabe food was 400 years ago. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of a lot of young chefs now that are, you know, that you know, give me a, a huge sense of pride in, in being indigenous and in the, in the way that they're exploring their roots, exploring that part of culture. But I kind of felt like, you know, I wanted to see people in here experiencing, you know, Indigenous culture in a modern, evolving, living style and not be focused too much on the past. I just needed them in the seats and I needed them talking about it and I needed them thinking about it. So, And that's what we achieve.
0: Right, right. Um... You know, speaking of, uh, you know, newer, younger chefs, um, you know, really getting into the industry here, there was just a restaurant that uh, opened, I think, either yesterday or maybe it's this weekend, but it's Mijam in... uh, wisconsin and um you know i, I and i think it's also a, a, an anishinaabe chef um what what would be your advice to chefs about um opening a restaurant and um uh, showcasing their indigenous food through a restaurant
7: i, I think it's still uh you know we're, it's obviously still an evolving uh, uh Thing. i don't want to say trend like that indigenous food is a trend it's not a trend it, i think we're it's well established you know i i'm friends with chefs across north america across turtle island right and there's there's young guys like um, um zach kishig here in in ontario doing uh you know really amazing things like sweet grass ice cream and uh, and really pulling from from foraged and forest ingredients and putting on a menu for for you know a dozen people at a, at a time um and that was that was the difficulty in opening a restaurant was to go you know are, am i in a position where you know whatever i do in, in terms of indigenous cuisine is that going to attract enough people to make it profitable and make it workable for me to you know to do all those things to to pay for the for the development of the restaurant the construction the staffing the you know, and pay all those ongoing bills and still, at the end of the day, make a little bit of profit. I never set out. Certainly you don't get into restauranting to become wealthy. Uh, You know, there's just, there's just no way. And to a larger extent, indigenous cuisine on that level, that's, that's really approaching something that Michelin should be looking at is something that has a very finite audience right now. And I think that you need to always be very aware of, of who your customer is, what, it is that attracts them to your space and what's going to get them coming back again and again and again. So that's, I mean, that's that's what restauranting is all about.
0: Right. And the uh, Um we were talking the other day, and that was a very um, uh, planned sort of, uh, you know, name you wanted to put right there on the restaurant. Uh, what does that mean, Tun?
7: Uh, well, Atacan is kind of a slangish uh, French word for for indigenous. Atacan means indigenous, uh, and I knew that coming here. Uh, and literally, my son came up with the name, and he was, you know, a big part of our building this restaurant, and and created all of our cocktail list, as we're, you know, we're kind of a cocktail bar slash, you know, uh, fast friendly restaurant. But uh, he chose the name and he said, why don't we just call it uh, uh, La Tectane? And, and he says, that way everybody from Quebec immediately knows what you are and what you represent. He says, everybody that speaks French locally in, in uh, on the Ontario side of the border will understand exactly what you are and what you're meant to be. He said, and if they don't, we'll have an opportunity to have a conversation with them because they'll ask, what does La Toc-Tain mean? And then you have that moment where you can go, here's what we came here to do. Here's what our mission statement is. Here's what we represent. And and that's it's worked out so well for us. Um and it's brought, you know, basically two, three major cultures together in into one room and and created conversation. And I think that's what that's what hospitality is about. That's what culture is. It's you know culture's not formed in a vacuum. It's it's brought together in small little restaurants gathering over food and, and and enjoying, you know, great drinks and and great company.
0: Right, right, and uh, the the restaurant was. Um... You know, very successful. You know, I, I heard about it down here. Um, you know, you've uh, been mentioned in magazines and in the press, and um, even when closing too, there there was a lot, a lot of uh, you know noise about um, hearing about you know La ta- Tavern American closing. I mean, it it had a big impact on um, Indigenous and Canadian food there, um, and what what uh what was the build-up i guess um that uh you know caused you to you know close last week
7: I mean, we we were i mean we were hugely successful and and covid uh came along 11 months into our first year of operation so you know we were just really getting on our feet and 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 profitable beyond what we had even dreamt of uh on our business plan and, and we had achieved everything that we set out to achieve. And then like overnight it came crashing down and we were closed and, and the governments in varying levels of governments in Canada, all the way down to municipal and, and regional health authorities shut us down four times, uh, in the first couple of years, right. The first two years of COVID like, and it was, it would be like, you know, completely shut down. Can't have anybody even in your restaurant, and we we pivoted to takeout, and we were not set up for takeout. We're not uh, uh, we're not that style of restaurant. Our food was not geared towards being put into a box and and carried home. Um, you know, there was that sort of thing. Then they told to, you can open at 50% capacity. We're a 20 seat restaurant, um, and they wanted uh, uh, six feet between customers, and 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 the health uh, unit people would come in with their badges and measuring tapes and measure from the back of one person to another and say it's that's only five feet six inches you can't have people seated at your bar so you know this sort of thing kept going and, and it just the the financial damage was was unbelievable so we kept you know we borrow we borrow and we took you know money off of cash advances on credit cards and we made sure we paid our staff that was that was crucial we were not going to you know go down without making sure that all of our staff were cared for and we hung on thinking that you know maybe next month maybe the month after that uh, we'll be back and it'll it'll all it'll all be over and and customers will rush back into the restaurant and we'll be full and noisy and loud and people having a you know a party every single night and there'll be people outside on the patio laughing and a crowd of of guests waiting to get into the restaurant but it never happened it never really came back and we're still only at probably 30 percent if we're lucky of what our sales were sort of 2019.
0: Right. And I can imagine like having to uh, make do with um, less and less uh, staff in the back and having it all fall on you to, um, you know, really, you know, take on all kinds of different uh, positions. What what was the, um, I guess, like the physical, uh, you know, um, toll uh, on on you during this time having to, uh, you know, take on, you know, all of that work kind of on your by yourself?
7: We, we we always knew that at some point we could fall back and we we both had tremendous experience in the industry and you know we could uh, cook and serve for a fair number of people on our own but we're not young I'm I'll be 62 in about three weeks and and she's just turning 66 today mm. happy birthday Nancy <laughs> <laughs> and uh and and we're going you know we did this you know as a to help a community and to help young people get work and to to train and and, and get them involved in the industry and and be an uplifting presence in in this area and and we did that it's uh, you know we knew that we would never you know become wealthy we intended to give the restaurant to to, to staff we intended to expand we we had already purchased another building and and built a, a gourmet grocery store we had bought another building on top of that and we were going to build an indigenous distillery so we had big plans for expansion just prior to this and you know for me uh, you know having been in kitchens for 35 years you know i'm i'm i keep saying to people i'm the grandfather of indigenous chefs now and, you know i start when i started you know I, I i think i told you before i stayed out of the sun and cut my hair short and people would think well maybe he's italian maybe he's the uh, mexican because there, there certainly was no benefit to me saying that I was indigenous. So, you know, I kind of worked through the, through the eighties and into the nineties, you know, working on, on indigenous cuisine and indigenous ingredients and presenting menus that were entirely made of pre-contact ingredients and and forage items and, and doing this long before anybody else even, even got into it. And here I am at the end of my career going, you know, I hurt every day. It's painful. It's, My knees aren't good anymore. Uh, I'm exhausted at the end of three or four days of work. You know, this is a young man's game,
0: Mm
7: -hmm. Uh, kitchen work. It's, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't recommend anybody enter into it without some serious thought. And the world is changing. I think the world is changing. I think restaurants are going to change. I think we're, you know, because of COVID, we're, Certainly in Canada at a, at a point where, you know, something has to give, you know, people's concept of what the value of of food is, like food that's that's created from scratch, from fresh ingredients on a day-to-day basis has a price. And, and I think your average person doesn't realize what that cost is, what that price should be. And I think there's going to be a lot of change in the next 10 years. And, you know, we're just coming out of it.
4: Right.
6: You
7: know, a lot of us, a lot of us, 50 percent of restaurants in Canada, are independents are sitting on on loans that uh, or, or help from governments where interest rates are, are doubling. Mm. And everybody's going, how are we going to pay all this off? How are we going to continue? And what happens is little independent restaurants like ours, not just indigenous, but restaurants across the country are, are going under and they're being replaced with with really poor franchises.
0: Right. And, um, you know, speaking of COVID, you also lost your sense of smell because of uh, COVID. H- how has that affected you uh, personally? And, and I, I I know you were talking to me yesterday about this, and it was the last straw. Um, and h- how has it affected you?
7: Well, uh, it was, yeah, it, it brought about sort of certainly a period of, of depression. And, and along with it, my health went uh you know when i realized i i couldn't i literally can't smell anything unless i'm like right on top of it and and often it's it's not what i should be smelling it may be you know acrid and 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 uh and smoky or horrible and i just i don't i just i'm not getting what i should get along with that part of my sense of taste so you know i had to simplify menus and go this is i can't create like this right now i have to work on on what i know from from tactile memory and from uh, visual memory, um, to be able to, to just keep the restaurant going. So that's been really poor, right? Uh, and along with, you know, like when I say my health, like I, I too much time sitting, you know, fretting about things, you know, leads to, you know, you sit there and you go, well, you know, instead of a glass of wine after work, I might have a whole bottle kind of thing and then and, mm-hmm. and just regret some of the choices that we've made but, which is really, really sad, because we have done tremendous things here. And I want to leave this going, you know, at the top, like that we were the best restaurant in Northern Ontario and, and Northern Quebec. There, there's a town in Quebec, almost two hours away, where they they say the best restaurant in that town, this city, it's a city. Um, they say the best restaurant in that city is our restaurant, is And that because they'll drive two hours each direction to come here. and. And I want to leave at that, you know, we did everything we could and we we're we're going out, but we're at the top of our game.
0: All right. All right. Thank you so much for that. Um, I think we're going to see more from Jerry in the future. I know he's thinking about turning over to teaching and teaching some of those young chefs over in uh, Canada. So good luck to you. And uh, thank you so much for listening today. I'm Andy Murphy. Have a good three day weekend
4: support by Amerind, Indian country's 100% tribally owned insurance partner. Amerind works with tribal governments and their business enterprises to provide effective commercial insurance coverage, strengthen Native American communities, protect tribal sovereignty, and help keep dollars in Indian country. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto solutions at Amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com.
2: Buju, Gana Go. weyne gakina, Gana weyne in the zone gaye In abe dan ono ge da kawindwa nishinabe kweg beba kani pi tezijig. Nawaj jigikendaman mau women's health checklist. the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services.